Hello, everybody. Welcome to Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Samini. I cover the Jets for ESPN, and I'd like to thank you for joining us. This is our sixth podcast. You know, we're trying to get this thing off the ground, and I really appreciate the support and encouragement as we tackle this project. Uh, once we hit late summer and uh, get to the fall and football season, we'll be a well-oiled machine and I can't wait till we get into that weekly mode. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and of course, on all the ESPN platforms. Our special guest for this show is Jim Nagy, the executive director of the Senior Bowl. He's been a scout for the Redskins, Patriots, Chiefs, and Seahawks. And I'm sure he's going to add some insight into the Jets' new GM, Joe Douglas. He knows him well. And he'll even talk about some of the Jets draft picks who participated in the Senior Bowl. That's coming up in the second quarter. For now, well, we've reached the dead period now on the NFL calendar. The mini camps are over, the OTAs are over, and people in the NFL are getting ready to take their vacations. As am I, quite frankly, in about a week or so. But if you're a Jet fan, you know, you're going to chill here for the next few weeks. But a couple of things you should know. A couple of things that could happen between now and training camp, which is, by the way, July 24th. Uh, they still have two draft picks that haven't been signed. That would be Quinnen Williams and Chuma Adoga. These picks are slotted. The, the amounts are predetermined. But sometimes there's some small things that need to be negotiated. For instance, last year with Sam Darnold, he was also the third pick, just like Quinnen Williams. And he showed up a couple of days late to camp because there were some sticking points with the default language with, with regard to his guaranteed money. He also ended up getting a lump sum payout on his signing bonus, which is extremely unusual for a top five pick. So those could be some of the minor sticking points holding things up with Quinn and Williams. He also has a relatively inexperienced agent, Nicole Lynn. That could be a factor as well. Again, I wouldn't sweat it. He'll be, uh, he'll be in in due time. The thing that I would be concerned about involves tight end Chris Herndon, because we all know he pleaded guilty several months ago to a uh, driving, a drunk driving incident in New Jersey. And in all likelihood, he will be suspended by the league. And according to the league's policy on this, a first time offender for an alcohol related offense, it's two games. So barring a major upset, he's going to get two games. Plus, there's the possibility he may get a little bit more because there's a clause in the NFL policy that says the commissioner has the right to add more to the suspension if he finds that there are aggravating circumstances. What are aggravating circumstances? In this case, it would be felonious conduct, extreme intoxication, property damage, or serious injury or death. Luckily, none of those things happened, but there was extreme property damage. He flipped a car on a highway in New Jersey. So I would not be surprised if that two-game suspension Turns out to be three or four, just based on aggravating circumstances. And again, that is up to the commissioner, Roger Goodell. But uh, before we head out into the off season and vacations and beach parties and all that fun stuff, let me leave you with this nugget of hope as you head into your football hibernation. So we know what happened this off season. This was a crazy off season for the Jets. One in which, at times, they appeared to have no clue what they were doing. And I've written that. I've been very critical of them. But the Jets finally, finally have a plan that is starting to reveal itself. And let me outline that for you very quickly. 
They have a GM and a head coach who are aligned philosophically. They have a GM, Joe Douglas, who has a staff that he knows and trusts. He's not just picking guys from other teams that he doesn't know. In fact, his senior advisor is Phil Savage, a guy he's worked with before in the past. And he, he's going to be kind of the consigliere, his uh, Tom Hagen for you Godfather fans out there. He'll be the Tom Hagen of the staff because he's going to be working very closely with Joe Douglas. So they have that. They have an experienced head coach in Adam Gase. This is not his first rodeo. They have an experienced head coach who is in lockstep with the play caller. And that's because it's the same person. Adam Gase is calling the plays. So they'll be on the same page. And lastly, and and mostly, definitely not least, they have a young quarterback with upside in Sam Darnold. Now, I went back and I checked. When was the last time the Jets had this kind of infrastructure? Coach, GM, quarterback, front office, all seemingly in line. I think you have to go back to 2010 and 11 when they had Mike Tannenbaum, Rex Ryan, Brian Schottenheimer, and Mark Sanchez. Uh, they worked well together for a couple of years, got to a couple of playoff runs. Uh, you know, so I think the Jets had the potential, potential is the key word, to duplicate that. There's no guarantees, of course. As Bill Parcells likes to say, they don't, they don't sell insurance for this kind of stuff. So you just never know. But it seems like they're pulling in the right direction at long last. Now, last year, they were not pulling in the right direction. And I can tell you this, never reported this, never really said it, but after some of those bad losses where they gave away games, I'd be in the press box and I would get texts from employees of the Jets, people who worked for the Jets who would actually send me texts blowing off steam and venting on how unhappy they were with the coaching staff. Oh, the coaches just cost us this game. I can't believe it. And that's not good. You can't win when that stuff happens. Uh, that, that's not pulling in the right direction. That's that's a toxic type environment. Uh, I don't think the Jets will have that now. I think they have everyone. They have that synergy that people like to use that word synergy. Look, it can go sideways fast, but at long last, Jets fans, there appears to be hope. And that is the end of the first quarter. And welcome to the second quarter. This is called The Green Room. We invite a special guest into the room every week. And this week, we are really excited to have Jim Nagy, the executive director of the Senior Bowl. He's uh, got an extensive background and in scouting. He's been with the Chiefs, Redskins, Patriots, Seahawks, and now, of course, running the Senior Bowl. So he knows his way around the scouting community. And thank you so much, Jim, for being with us today. Yeah, Rich, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, I want to dive right in because I know, uh, you know, you know Joe Douglas, of course, the Jets' new general manager. You guys have probably crossed paths hundreds of times on the, on the road in scouting and senior bowl events and so forth. Uh, what are the Jets getting in Joe Douglas? Yeah, you, you're right. When Joe and I have crossed paths a ton, uh, he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, first of all, you know, he, He's really well respected, Rich, because he came up the right way. He wasn't one of these guys that, you know, got fast tracked right out of the gate and put in some position that, you know, people in the league didn't feel he earned. Again, you know, in the NFL, it's a really small fraternity. There's only, you know, 300 plus, you know, guys in personnel. So, yeah, everyone really gets to know each other, you know, and you see some guys with these rapid ascents that, 
Uh, you know, guys that are on the league kind of look look uh, sideways at a little bit. But, you know, Joe, Joe was stuck in a really good Baltimore personnel department for a long time. Ozzie Newsom was the GM. Yeah, Eric DaCosta didn't go anywhere. So uh, with Eric not going anywhere, that kind of created a log jam, you know, in that department. So Joe was a area scout for quite a long time and, uh, you know, got a shot to go to Chicago a couple of years ago as the college director parlayed that into that job in Philly. And now here a couple of years later, now he's, he's got his GM job. So, um, you know, he, he's paid his dues. He's one of those guys that uh, he hasn't forgotten where he came from. You know, you know, some guys, as they move up the ladder, you can kind of see them lose their way a little bit. And uh, that certainly hasn't happened with Joe. He's, uh, you know, just a hardworking, good guy, really good evaluator, um, good football man. So, no, I think the Jets made a great hire. And you had a really interesting tweet. on It was actually the day of Joe's press conference when he was introduced. And earlier in that day, he came out on the practice field. He actually introduced himself to the media. And he was wearing Jets sweats, you know, out on the practice field. And then later he was, of course, dressed up you know, in his best, you know, a, a nice suit and tie for the press conference. And you had a tweet pointing out just on how his wardrobe changed for that day. And why didn't you, I thought it was inter- a very interesting observation how he went from sweats to suit in one day. And maybe you could explain a little bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. The tweet was essentially about how, you know, the best GMs can, can are, are comfortable in both outfits, right. In a, in suits and, a, and, and a sweat. Um, and I, you know, my point being is that, that, the GM job, I mean, really, um, unless you're sitting in the GM chair in an NFL office, I mean, you're, you're, you're really a high priced evaluator. So they, they can, they can give you a fancier title or they can pay you a lot more money. But at the end of the day, you're, you're paid to write report, you know, watch tape and write reports and evaluate players. So, but once you get thrust into that GM chair, it takes on a, a whole different, uh, magnitude. You know, you're, you're put out and you're the face of the franchise. You're put out in press conferences. You're, you know, doing a lot of public speaking in front of season ticket holders and um, at charity events, you know. So some of those guys that are, are comfortable wearing their sweats out to practice and talking to coaches and, uh, you know, grinding tape in the office, they're not comfortable, you know, in those settings, The you know, the media settings, the press conference. It's hard for them to put that suit on and feel comfortable. And vice versa, there's some guys that are really good in those settings but then, you know, you get them with football people and, and, you know, you get them in a, in a draft room or, you know, on a practice field. Um, you know, if they had to go to a pro day, they wouldn't be really comfortable, you know, taking a guy through linebacker drills or a receiver through, for, through wideout drills in a private workout. So, you know, there, there's really, it, there's a lot of hats that GMs have to wear, but there's really those two roles. There's the business side role, the, the professional role, and then there's the football side role. And, um, you know, I think most people would think that, you know, that should be a prerequisite that you should be comfortable in both roles. But, uh, Rich, I know you've probably covered guys that that's just simply not the case. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I think that Joe is great. When I say he's a great hire, I say that, you know, because I know that to me, the most important quality, um, you know, when you are a scout, you have to be able to connect with all different kinds of people. You know, so Joe's ability, that's why. You know, I guess I'm a little biased because I came up on the college side as well. But, you know, when you go into a different school every day, you're, you're interacting with so many different kinds of people in the building, whether it's the equipment guy or the janitors or, you know, the head coach or a position coach. And, you know, you just really need to be in, in different schools. You, you might be down in the southeast and, 
you know, one day you're at Alabama and the next day you're at, um, you know, Elkhorn State. So, you know, you just need to be able to connect with all different kinds of people and wear different hats. And I think Joe's going to be uh, very capable in, in, in both roles. Yeah, ultimately, ultimately, it comes down to a people business. You know, you have to get along with people. You have to evaluate people, how they'll do on the next level. And from my little exposure with Joe, he does seem to have that regular guy quality, you know, the ability to roll up his sleeves and, and do that kind of work. But like you said, also get out in front of a crowd and, you know, tell a funny story. So I think that's that's really, really important. Um, just uh, it, it's a multifaceted role, as we know, in the in the NFL. No question. And now uh, Phil Savage, the Jets hire him as their senior football advisor. And he was your predecessor. He was the executive director of the Senior Bowl before you took over. So I know you know Phil, and uh, I know he knows Joe because they work together in Baltimore. So what do you think? How do you think Phil will fit into the mix with the Jets? Yeah. Uh, again, I think that was a, a really a really nice move by Joe bringing Phil into the fold. So where Joe's going to have most of his growing pains is going to be everything everything aside from the football, right? I mean. <laughs> Watching tape and identifying players, and and uh, that that's that's his wheelhouse. So, um, you know, back to the previous comment, how how those guys, you know, most guys outside the GM chair are just evaluators. Well, now he's going to be thrust into a position where, you know, things are going to co- come across his day on a daily on his desk on a daily basis that you know he's never had to deal with before. Whether it, whether it is a you know a media obligation or a, or a speaking event or a fundraiser or something on the business side, um, you know, a budget issue. So those are, those are things that Phil has had great background in, whether it's his GM job with the Cleveland Browns or here's the, you know, director at the Senior Bowl. Um, again, I can just speak to what I've, I've had to accomplish over the last year in moving from a scouting role, an all-scouting role, into more of a, you know, executive role. And, and um you know, I wish, frankly, there were days where I had someone to lean on for some of this stuff and, and ask questions to. But uh, so that's going to be great that Joe's going to have Phil at his disposal and, and Phil's got that background. And, uh, you know, aside from being like a, a trusted aide and someone he, he has background with, it's also a really good set of eyes because Phil's a good scout and he knows what he's looking at. So it's just uh, another strong voice in the room uh, around draft time. It, it finally seems like the Jets have a plan here they got a front office that seems to be gonna has some chemistry is that is that your take as well because in the past there always seemed to be conflicting agendas with the jets and the coach the gm didn't know each other yada 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 and now it just seems like maybe they they've formed something here and they have something well i think the important thing rich is that uh, at least at the top they have um you know joe joe was able to get some you know rex hogan and chad alexander and phil um, put together that structure up top, and now it's going to, you know, now they're probably, from what I'm hearing, they're going to go through the year with their current group of scouts. And then Joe's going to have to figure out which, you know, which those guys fit in what he wants to do moving forward. So there probably will be a little more transition and flux, um, you know, maybe a year from now, maybe after next year's draft, who knows. I mean, I hate seeing guys lose, lose their jobs, so I hope that all those it works out for all those guys. But um, that's really the next step. But yeah, at least at the top, having some synergies with the, you know, Joe and, and Adam Gaze, um, it seems to be like it's, it's going to be a good, stable thing moving forward. Now, Jim, you've been, uh, as we mentioned earlier, you work for four different teams in, in scouting capacities. I want you to take us into 
the draft room and like leading into the draft. I mean, how how you mentioned the word synergy. How important is that synergy when you're putting your draft board together? Uh, are arguments a good thing? How often do they occur leading while you're stacking your draft board? Does it get heated at times? And just that overall chemistry issue. Uh, yeah, I mean, every team's a little different, you know, based off how they structure their department. But uh, I think the critical things are, you know, the, the meshing between the coaching and the scouting staff. So um, there's got to be great communication on both ends. Um, you know, really that should be a, a collaborative effort between the two two departments. You know, I think Adam and, and Joe's relationship is, is, I think, in any organization the most critical. So um, it seems like they, they have a background there, and that's a good thing uh, moving forward between those two. Um, and does it get heated? Not as much as, you know, I think people on the outside think. I mean, in terms of even people raising their voices and getting into shouting matches in, in almost 20 years, I never saw that happen. You know, there, there's certainly disagreements, and uh, disagreements can be good. You know, I mean, you never, you know, I think I think some of the best, uh, you know, some of the best picks I've seen made is where we've we've had debates on a guy, and uh, you work you work through those things. You never want everyone to be on the same page. I mean, that's that's uh, you know, if you went through an entire year and everyone was on the same page, <laughs> right. I don't think that's realistic, but. It's just how you work through those things. I think there needs to be a common respect in the room. Um, if you know, if you were out doing your work all fall and I was doing mine, and you know, we get in the room, we got to have that common respect that we're both sacrificing for our families and and uh, going through the grind that scouting is. You know, so when you get in that room, you can't lose sight of that respect. So again, we talked about it being a people business. It's it's just being able to connect with with everyone in the room, and that's hard because. You know, as a scouting staff, you're really disjointed a lot of the year. You're only you're only together for, you know, usually about four to eight weeks out of the year in the same room. You're oftentimes you're closer with other scouts from other teams. You know that you're in the same part of the country with. So mm-hmm. it's uh, chemistry's big, and you know Joe's going to have to set that culture, and he can do things from the top down to kind of set that and, and create that chemistry. But um, yeah, draft rooms are fascinating. I think that. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to get access. I don't know if any teams will open themselves up truly during the draft process. You know, there's been a couple books written on, you know, the War Room and Patriot Reign and some places I've been. But, um, yeah, some of the dynamics that go on that, that in the times leading up to the draft are, you know, really interesting. Yeah, so you mentioned the Patriots, and obviously a lot of a lot of our listeners do not like the Patriots because this is a Jets pod- <laughs> podcast. But I think – Yeah, yeah, but, but – and I know I am totally intrigued. I, I think I've always come away with the impression that they know exactly what they're looking for. You know, Belichick just lets everyone – they just seem to be on the same page all the time and know exactly what they look for in a player. You were there. You worked for them. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, yeah, I think you're right on it, Rich. Um, I think that's one of the best things they do there is really spell out um, what they are looking for at every position. I mean, I could show you some of our old scouting manuals, and and right, I mean, if you're it's a three four outside linebacker, I mean, it is a detailed, you know, twenty bullet points on what exactly the guy has to do in that role, and what what are the physical traits, you know, in terms of you know heavy hands to to strike and set an edge, and um, you know the ability to to win as a pass rusher with with speed and an element of power um, or counter ability like. It's, they they do they do a tremendous job of spelling that out for their scouts. So which is important when you're a scout, you go out 
And uh, if you're just scouting for your team, you know exactly what the coaching staffs want. Um, you can you can not only it's what what you're looking for. It's about eliminating too. You can elim- eliminate a lot of guys that uh, that don't fit. So again, is I think one of the, the main things that gets lost is uh, you n- you never want as a scouting staff. You never want to hand off players that your coaching staff doesn't want to coach. Mm-hmm. And I've you know I've been a part of that before where we've drafted a player because he slid to a certain level where we knew the coaching. You know we knew there's maybe a position coach that didn't like a player too much. But, uh, you know, we have him in the third round. He falls all the way to the fifth, and we're just like, you know what? <laughs> he's still here in the fifth. Let's take him, and, and this guy, you know, he's going to have to coach him. And, uh, you know, and then you get him in the building, and, and, you know, coaches can truly make or break a player's career, you know, whether they're invested or not. And I've seen it happen. And uh, so you really want buy-in from across the, the two staff, scouting and coaching, and be on the same page and have the same vision, I think, that's the biggest thing in New England is they have a vision for the player, and uh, and, and it helps with, with Bill making the call. Bill knows what he wants, and then you know Bill's it's Bill's job to get his coaching staff on board to coach up what he what he saw on the college tape. So um, you know they do a great job in a lot of areas, but like you said, spelling out what they want uh, at each position and knowing what they want is one of them. And, you know, as one of the perks of the, uh, being the director of the Senior Bowl, you know, you're, you're getting to see a lot of players and the Jets had two players they drafted who participated in the Senior Bowl, uh, Chuma Adoga, the tackle from USC and, uh, tight end slash fullback, uh, from West Virginia, Trevon Wesco, who the Jets drafted in the fourth round. And, uh, just curious, Jim, put on your scouts hat for a second. And uh, what do you think of these two players? Let's start with Adoga because, you know, they did pe- pick him in the third round. They actually traded up a spot to get him. What are your thoughts on him as a player? Yeah, Chuma's really talented. Um, going through the process last year, um, so I staffed this thing last year with uh, former NFL scouts. And uh, you know, for the first time, our game has never had that. I thought it would be the best way to do it. Um, we had four four regional scouts spread across the country, so – um, our West Coast guy, you know, it's in the bottom line of his report, he said, I'm not sure if we want to, you know, reward this player with a, with a senior bowl invite because, uh, you know, there was just some, there were some questions there, you know, in terms of, you know, commitment to football and, and some things of that nature. Nothing off the field, like not that he was a bad person or anything, but just kind of commitment to football. Um, you know, but you put on the tape and you're like, boy, this guy's really, really talented. Mm-hmm. So he came he came down here, and uh, we actually named him our overall practice player of the week. Um, mm-hmm. He was lights out. I mean, Andre Dillard from Washington State, who went in the first round. Titus Howard from Alabama State, who went in the first round. Um, Caleb McGarry from Washington, who went in the first round. We had a bunch of first-round offensive linemen, and I thought, I thought uh, Chuma had the best week of any of those guys during the practice week. And uh, so really – I think if there weren't some of those questions, um, you know, coming out of the fall about, you know, some of the makeup stuff with Chuma, he, he might have been a first-round pick. So from a, from a pure talent perspective, they could have, you know, the Jets could hit a home run there. I mean, he's got starting left tackle ability, and those guys are hard to find. It's hard to find a starting left tackle outside of the first round. So that could be, uh, that could be a huge hit for the Jets. Wow, really interesting. I know Jet fans will be excited to hear that. The Jets actually, when they drafted him, they acknowledged there were some 
some concerns about his commitment, and uh, they recognized that it was somewhat of a gamble. But like you said, they said he played some left tackle that week and really stood out. So uh, I think they're hoping he competes for a starting job this year. Now on, on – yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, Rich, to that point, you know, he, he did. He mostly played right tackle there at USC. And, uh, you know, not to put him in, in the same category as, as Tyron Smith from, from the Cowboys, but – Tyron was the same way coming out. He played right tackle at USC. And, uh, you know, you take it for granted, oh, he's just flipping sides, it's still tackle. That's hard. It's hard to get in a different, you know, different-handed stance and, and, and play. And Chuma did that this, you know, the week down here at the Senior Bowl without a lot of training. And, uh, yeah, like I said, he's got the feet and the pass pro ability to play left tackle. So I just I wanted to throw that out there that, yeah, he doesn't have a lot of background at left tackle, but he certainly has the ability to do it. That's a great point. And actually, he was playing some left tackle in the OTA practices, uh, getting some work with the second group. And he, like you said, looked really, uh, nimble, you know, for a guy that's, you know, he's only 6'3", but he's a wide guy and he seems to have really good feet. And so I, I think, uh, yeah, let's see. Maybe he'll, uh, he's competing for a job this year. And, uh, Trevon yeah. Wesco, uh, to me, an interesting guy. He didn't put up great numbers at West Virginia in, in the pass receiving category, but, uh, what did you see from him that week in Mobile? Yeah, he was actually one of my favorite players in last year's draft class because he, he can, he's, he's got a lot of Swiss Army knife ability. First of all, so we brought him down. This, this says something about his character. Um, you know, our goal is to have every player drafted in the game. And, and uh, you know, I went through our board uh, the week of Thanksgiving with 17 teams in the league. Uh, you know, that it's really all we had time for. I wanted to get at least half the league in. And, you know, the calls were to the college directors or the GMs, guys that had access to all their grades or their board. And uh, really the only fullback that there was a consensus that was, that was a draftable fullback was a kid by the name of Alec Ingold from Wisconsin. Ironically, all 17 teams told me they had draftable grades and he didn't get drafted. Because, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I really thought he would, too. He was really athletic. He could play on special teams, so I thought he would be a guy. So we didn't want to force another fullback into the, into the senior bowl that we didn't think was draftable. So, you know, Trayvon is a, you know, he's kind of a unique body type. He's 6'3"-ish, you know, 270 pounds, so he's thick and stout enough to play some fullback. He hadn't done it a whole lot at West Virginia, line up in the backfield, but, you know, reached out to him and his agent and said, you know, listen, this is, you know, we're going to bring in six other tight ends. We'll let, you know, you'll do some tight end stuff during the week, but we're bringing you in as a fullback. Are you cool with that? And uh, he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. You know, the more I can do and prove I can do. So uh, he jumped right on board, which, again, I, I think that speaks volumes about, just you know, the kind of competitor that he is. And then uh, – from a tight end's perspective, and he did a great job during the week. I mean, some of that lead blocking stuff is not easy if you haven't done it a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're, you're, you're trying to get through the hole and, and sustain on contact with a running start, which you don't get at tight end. So he did a really nice job in that role. And then at tight end, he's kind of a dying breed guy that can play on the end of the line of scrimmage. He's, he's big and strong enough, and he's, he's tough. He'll, he'll fight his ass off. And, um, you know, so everyone loved his blocking ability. It's pretty easy when you put on the tape. And uh, I think what showed up during Senior Bowl week is what he can do in the pass game. You know, he's really underrated in that area. He actually has more run after catch than you would think when you start watching him. Um, he's kind of sneaky that way. So, um, and you brought up the point he wasn't that productive in college, but uh, that's kind of a blanket statement uh, that you'll notice. I mean, the college game they they really don't they really don't utilize the tight end like the like the NFL does. So 
if you go across college football, there's very few tight ends that are, are more productive. So I would look for Trayvon to be a lot more productive as a pass catcher, pass catcher than he showed at West Virginia, um, just because the NFL does such a better job of scheming up that position. And, and lastly, I know this kid wasn't at the Senior Bowl. He wasn't a senior, but he was the Jets' number one pick, third overall. And I know, you know, he's from Alabama, grew up in Alabama, played for Nick Saban. And I know you know a lot about Quinnen Williams. And I think the fan base has really high expectations for Quinnen. And didn't get a lot chance to do a lot this spring because he had a calf injury that kept him out of most of the spring practices. But uh, how good a player are the Jets getting there in Quinnen Williams? Yeah, they're getting. I think they got the best player in the draft. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's high expectations, and there should be. He's really talented. Um, to me, to me, Quinn is just scratching the surface. He's a guy that, you know, through the draft process, um, you know, I heard it thrown out some that, oh, he's a one-year wonder. Well, my point is, there's no such thing as one-year wonders at Alabama. It's not like you're, you know, he he was sitting behind a bunch of first-round picks. You know, right. for a couple of years, and then, and then this year is a is a first time starter. Um, what did he have? Did he have nine, ten sacks, something like that? Um, you know, so in the SEC, in the SEC, which is a big deal. I mean, he's playing big time football, and to get a guy that can affect the quarterback from the interior, to me, there's a lot more value to that guy than there is to edge players. So they're they're just so much harder to find. So, you know, to me, like the debate through the draft process was Josh Allen from Kentucky or Nick Bose at Ohio State. I mean, I would have take, taken Quinnen all day long just because it's, it's it's just easier to find edge pressure, and you can scheme up edge pressure more than you can scheme up interior pressure. So to find a guy that's that good against the run and can also get to the quarterback is, is huge. And, again, he's really hard to block because he's both powerful and slippery. Usually guys are one or the other. He can, for a big, powerful man, he's also got this really cool slippery quality to him. So, uh, you know, and that speaks to his technique and how natural he is. And so to me, you're talking about a 20-year-old kid who, you know, by the time he's 25, 26 years old, um, you know, he's, he, he's already a handful. I don't know what he's going to be in, in three or four or five years. Actually, I think his teammate Jonah Williams once called him a 300-pound bar of soap. So that that I I thought that was a very uh, memorable quote, and that's pretty much what you just hit on. Just the the size, the strength, and the quickness is is just a is a rare package when you get all that. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. That's why I think uh, that was uh, to me. I mean, he he was the hands down best player in the draft, in my opinion. Wow. Well, you got Jet fans very excited, Jim, after uh, your scouting reports on uh, these three players and also your take on Joe Douglas. And we really, really appreciate you stopping in to the green room. This is, like I said, you, you've been in the scouting business for a long time, and now you're the executive uh, director of the Senior Bowl. I've been to the Senior Bowl a few times, not recently, but it's a great event. It's just a mecca for scouting and NF, you know, future NFL stars and, uh, Mobile is a great city to have it. So I really appreciate you coming in, Jim. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Rich, thanks for having me on. I'll say this to the Jets fans, to, to your last point about the game down here. We haven't done a good enough job marketing our game to fans. This is an ultimate fans week. If you want to immerse yourself in NFL culture, you know, and be able to stand 10 feet from these drills and, you know, just, you know, go into a bar and maybe see your general manager, or your head coach, or, you know, just be, you know, be around the NFL for a week and have it be affordable. 
And, uh, you know, some, some of these events, the Super Bowl and whatnot, you can't uh, – they really price fans out. So we've got an affordable week. We'd love to see Jets fans take over Mobile next January. Oh, that sounds awesome. Yeah, the hardcore fans will eat that up because it is just football – talk and scouting and like you say you, you literally rub elbows uh you can rub elbows with jim Nagy at the local bar and maybe if you're nice to him maybe he'll buy you a beer but uh, thank you that's a great enticement for jet fans jim thanks so much and uh look forward to catching up with you down the road absolutely rich anytime i love being on thanks and welcome to the third quarter this is the blind side this is our twitter mailbag Got some great questions this week. The first one from at Southern Jet NC, my old buddy Rich. If Bilal Powell looks good in training camp, could Eli McGuire be used as trade bait to a running back needy team to get a veteran offensive lineman on the bubble that would serve as kind of an offensive line band-aid for a year or two? Rich, uh, I don't see that happening. Uh, frankly, Eli McGuire does not have much, if any, trade value. I think they'd have to give up something more substantial if they want to get an offensive lineman. And they do need offensive line help. They need depth. I know Adam Gase is very, very concerned about the depth. Second question, at JP Waxer. Rich, can you summarize the current cap situation and uh, where it leaves them going forward? Uh, yes, JP, I can. As a matter of fact, the Jets have $28.5 million right now under the salary cap. Does does not include the Quinn and Williams contract. So once he signs, they'll still be over $20 million, which is uh, about fifth or sixth most cap room in the league, which puts them in a really good spot. And going forward in 2020, yeah, landscape changes a little bit. They have uh, right now $26.4 million under the cap next year. That puts them right in the middle of the league. So it's, you know, not quite what it used to be, but it's not cap hell for sure. They'll have the ability to do some things, just not a ton of spending like they did this past offseason. Okay, next question from at Fady Dizzle. What's the most underrated move of the offseason so far, whether it be in the front office or a player related move? I like this question. This is a really good question. And I'm going to say Ty Montgomery. The running back, uh, running back really slash wide receiver because he used to play wide receiver for the Green Bay Packers. The Jets are using that running back, FYI. He's still wearing number 88, has a receiver number. With Le'Veon Bell sitting out the spring, Ty got a lot of work with the first team as a running back. I think he is a poor man's Bell in that he can be a multi-purpose guy. He can run, he can catch. I think he's going to surprise some people. Now he may not have the biggest role. Because Le'Veon's going to be getting most of it, but Montgomery could contribute as a kickoff returner, also as a wide receiver. So I think Ty Montgomery is going to be my underrated pickup for the offseason. And uh, love this question from at Gerard underscore Tegans. How do you see the 2019 Jets offense being different from years past? Can we expect more of a passing game or is Gase really more run balanced? Well, I think. The Jets hope it can be different by actually scoring touchdowns for a change instead of uh, putting a uh, player in the uh, Pro Bowl, Jason Myers, for his field goal kicking ability. But uh, it's a good question because I think there will be some differences. Now, Adam Gase last year in Miami, his base offense was 11 personnel. And by that, I mean one running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. They ran that 
package 73% of the time. So it was very much a wide receiver oriented offense. Interesting. Jer- Jeremy Bates last year with the Jets ran that only 33% of the time. So I think you're going to see a lot of wide receivers involved with the Jets. In terms of run pass ratio, the Jets and the Dolphins last year were exactly the same. They ran it 42% of the time, threw it 58, probably because they were playing catch up so much. So I don't think a, a, a dramatic change there. I think where you're going to see the biggest difference is tempo. The Jets offense last year moved at a glacial pace. I mean, they were among the slowest teams to run plays in between plays. And I think you're going to see a much quicker tempo this year. They practiced it all spring. I watched it with my own eyes. For a team that was learning a new offense, they actually moved pretty quickly in the spring. So I think that, along with the versatility of using guys in different spots, will be some of the biggest differences between the Adam Gase offense and the, uh, the how can I say, the so-called offense you saw last year from Jeremy Bates. Uh, another question from at possible flex IB one. Are you going to try to get Greg Williams and Joe Vitt to go on the Maury show? Yeah, that would be great. I mean, we asked these guys last week, Joe Vitt and uh, Greg Williams, about being together again. Of course, they were the Bounty Gate adversaries back in the day with the Saints. And they I think we touched a nerve with some of those questions. They did not want to hear about that. But you know what? I, I think they're going to get along. OK, they know everyone's watching them. I think they'll put those differences aside and work. These are two good coaches. They're experienced coaches, and I think they'll be able to get along and just concentrate on football. And uh, last question from at FlickGuy123. What are the odds of us fixing the offensive line this year so Sam doesn't get injured? That's my biggest fear. Uh, Flick, I think that's the fear of a lot of Jet fans. Uh, I think this offensive line is... Okay, mediocre. I mean, I think they have issues at center with Jonathan Harrison. It's not as bad as some people are making it out to be. But here's the problem. I mean, you're pretty much stuck with it. Unless you make a big trade, you're not you're not going to get a starting caliber offensive lineman. So I know this is a big concern of Adam Gase. Not so much the starting five, but the depth is a major, major concern. Because if someone gets hurt, man then it's uh, it's time to uh, raise the red flag there a little bit. So that, folks, is the end of the third quarter. And welcome to the fourth quarter. This is the Red Zone. Just a way uh, to bring some insights on what it's like covering the Jets. Been doing this for 30 years, and, you know, you pick up some things along the way and uh, try to make this more of a personal segment of the podcast and, you know, this week I want to talk about Adam Gase. I had the opportunity to sit down with Adam uh, just last week in his office for a long time. We Really my first chance to sit down and get to know him. And I really like him. You know, I know he came with Miami and the reputation. And then, of course, his opening press conference was a disaster, which he will readily admit. But uh, he is an engaging guy. He's very funny. He's self-deprecating. Uh, I can tell you he is supremely confident in what he's doing offensively. He knows what he wants to do. He's optimistic about this team. He's got kind of a swagger, and uh, I think he got that from Mike Martz, one of his coaching mentors. He's got a moxie, and I, I think it's good. It's refreshing. I think it's about time the Jets had that in a head coach. I'm not saying that's going to make him 
you know, the next so-and-so, the next big Bill Parcells. But I like those qualities in a coach, and it was really enjoyable to sit down with him. You know, I've covered so many head coaches over the years, and some of the guys I've had really good relationships with, some not so much. Uh, for instance, I woke up last Sunday morning to a text from Todd Bowles, who was uh, wishing me a happy Father's Day, which I thought was a really nice really nice gesture on his part. Uh, some people might find this hard to believe, but I actually still get Christmas cards from Eric Mangini every year without fail, a Christmas card from Eric Mangini. And I, I got to tell you, he's got the best Christmas cards. They're professionally done with his kids and they're awesome. So I got along with him with, well, Rex Ryan and I, we get along okay. In fact, I was just in Bristol a couple of months ago. I walked into a side room at the studio and I saw a life-sized cutout, a cardboard cutout of Rex Ryan standing there with an ESPN microphone. I took a picture and I texted him and he got a couple of good laughs out of that. Parcells, I still keep in touch with. Uh, Bill Belichick, frankly, I haven't talked to in a few years, but at one point, you know, we were okay. I remember I called him once to do a story. And this is when he was with the Patriots. He called me back and at my home and he apologized. He said, I hope I'm not catching you at a bad time. And I said, well, actually, I was just playing Madden with my son. He's kicking my butt. So your call is coming at a good time. And then he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I always get my butt kicked at Madden, too. He can't quite master that. And it always struck me as odd as like one of the great coaches in history gets his butt kicked in Madden. So I could totally relate to that. Uh, you know, some coaches I didn't get along great with, you know, Bruce Coslett, not so good. Rich Kotite, not so good. But for the most part, uh, these are good people who, for whatever reason, it didn't work out. And I'll leave you with this. My, the first coach I ever co- covered, going back way, way back to Joe Walton, 1989. I was young. I just got on the jet speed for Newsday. And I actually, Joe and I and our wives went out to dinner at a really good Italian restaurant on the south shore of Long Island. We had a water view. We sat down. It was kind of an introduction. We had the best dinner. I mean, Joe, who's usually really not much of a talker, he was very glib that night. He was telling me stories. He really let his hair down. It was just a really wonderful, wonderful time. In fact, at the end of the meal, I remember thinking we were almost done. And he goes, wait a minute, we got to do some shots of Uzo. So there I am doing shots of Uzo with Joe Walton. And I walked out of the restaurant that night thinking, this is going to be awesome. I'm covering a a team that's pretty decent. I'm in good with the head coach. He likes me. This is going to be a great, easy beat for me to cover. And then the season started and Joe went back to his dry personality. Everything fell apart. They went 4-12 and and he got fired on Christmas Eve. And I said to myself, uh, you know, welcome to the Jets. And I've been trapped in this vortex of constant coaching change ever since. But like I said many times, it is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for checking in this week and to uh, this week's uh, flight deck. I just want to thank our special guest, uh, Jim Nagy, the executive director of the Senior Bowl, for bringing some scouting insights to the Jets. Also want to remind everyone, uh, first, and also thank our producer, Jeff Scopin, who always does a great job. And just to remind everyone, you can catch this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and all over the ESPN platforms, including ESPN.com. Uh, and I hope you will give it a listen and subscribe because once we get rolling into football season, this is going to be awesome. So everyone, I'll uh, catch you next time. Just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.